When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Leslie Chang. Climate change is already happening. It's not something that's coming in the future. It's already here. But it can be kind of hard to internalize that message, right? Maybe some weird weather like a heat wave hits, and you say to yourself, ugh, global warming is real. But then the heat wave passes, and the consciousness of climate change kind of fades into the background again. We don't know the specifics of how climate change is going to feel or how it's going to look. But one telltale sign will almost certainly be in how ecosystems respond. So given that climate change is already here, does that mean that we're already starting to see ecological upheaval? On today's show, we have two stories about widespread biological change. In our first piece, producer Peter Arcuni explores the mystery of a coastal epidemic that was largely hidden from view. It was discovered by citizen scientists who are making regular observations and keeping tabs on tide pool creatures. So when the epidemic hit, they were some of the first to see the signs. Here's Peter. A few weeks ago, I drove down to Pillar Point. It's a popular Pacific Coast tide pool area about 25 miles south of San Francisco. When I got there, I met Rebecca Johnson and Allison Young. They work at the California Academy of Sciences, and they help run a team of volunteers. Do you want to walk me through briefly what it what exactly we're doing? Sure. So um, out here on the reef, we have six permanent plots that we monitor regularly. We count echinoderms, so starfish and sea urchins and nudibranchs, and then a few other things, mostly muscle-associated animals, like some limpids and some barnacles. Um, how big are the plots? So the plots are a 10 diameter, 10 meter diameter circle. Rebecca and Allison were bopping between volunteers, helping them count and identify different tide pool creatures. The volunteers were marking their observations on a clipboard. Citizen science efforts like this one have become important for building big picture observations of regional and global ecosystem health. 
As I strolled between the tide pools, I saw what looked to me like a healthy amount of sea stars and other organisms. But not so long ago, it was a whole different story. A few years back, citizen science groups, including those led by Rebecca and Allison, were the first to notice that sea stars along the west coast were disappearing. It was an epidemic that came to be known as sea star wasting disease. When the wasting was at its worst, did you see even this many? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you would see like that. Allison and I came out right after. And this plot, actually, I'm pretty sure that there were maybe like 95 stars in here. And then the next time we did it, there were five. And how, what was the time period between those like two? Four months. And that was in 2013 or yeah. 14? In late 2013, around the time the Pillar Point group was noting the decline of their sea stars, rangers in Olympic National Park in Washington were also witnessing the first signs of an epidemic. They were seeing stars with missing limbs, and their whole bodies seemed to be falling apart. Ian Hewson is a marine biologist from Cornell, and he was brought out to help investigate. The first disease sign is usually the animal uh, loses its internal pressure and essentially it looks deflated. Um, then typically what happens, the arms start to twist quite dramatically to the point of it sort of almost tying itself into knots. Uh, a lot of aquarium keepers on the West Coast were calling this pretzeling because they were basically turning themselves into living pretzels. Next, small white lesions begin to appear on the sea star's skin. The lesions spread and grow until arms and other bits of flesh tear off. Eventually, the skin disintegrates altogether. By the end, all that remains is a gelatinous white residue where the star used to be. So, you know, it's a pretty dramatic disease when it occurs in the field. Uh, usually by the time we start to see lesions occurring on the surfaces of their, uh, their skin, essentially, uh, they're gone. You know, they're, they're going to die uh, within a few days. Sea star wasting disease kills quickly and without mercy. Now, it's worth noting that 2013 wasn't the first time this had been observed. Divers and fishermen have reported sightings of mangled or dying sea stars as far back as the 1970s. But those outbreaks were short-lived and isolated to much smaller regions. The epidemic in 2013 was at a whole different scale. This is uh, by far the most geographically widespread epidemic uh, in marine habitats that we've ever seen. You know, it's basically affected sea stars all the way from, as of right now, the Alaska Peninsula, which is that little bit that juts out in the uh, southwest of Alaska, all the way down to Baja, California. And it's really, you know, we've never seen anything that's affected marine animals on that kind of geographic scale. It's just been absolutely enormous. It was the largest epidemic to hit, not just sea stars, but any marine animal ever. In the months following the outbreak, Stars in many areas along the West Coast were reduced to as low as 5% of their original population. Purple and orange ochre stars were once common up and down the coast. They became a rare sighting. And the sunflower star, which has 16 to 24 arms, looked poised for extinction. So let's pause for a moment and ask, what would happen if all the stars died off? What does an ocean without sea stars even look like? Sea stars are extremely important predators, uh, so you can have very few of them, but if you take them away, then the total ecosystem, the structure changes. They are kind of the top of the ecosystem there. And 
if you lose the top predators in that ecosystem, it's going to have a cascade on the abundance of their prey, which in turn has a cascade abundance on their prey, and so on and so forth. And as a result, you know, there's a real potential if they're gone to change the ecosystem quite dramatically. The cascade could look something like this. Stars feed on urchins and mussels. Without their primary predator to keep them in check, mussels overcrowd the rocky intertidal zone, making it unlivable for other marine species. Urchin populations also explode, and they would then consume entire kelp forests, where many animals go to feed and seek shelter, including everyone's favorite fuzzy pod critter, the sea otter. Otters, now without the cover of kelp, are more vulnerable to their predators, sharks. I mean, you can go on and, and think about how these things are going to change. At the time of the 2013 outbreak, researchers had no idea what was happening. At first, Ian was skeptical of the idea of a sea star super plague, figuring the reports from Washington were just an isolated incident, perhaps the result of a toxin that had entered the water. And then we started to receive word from the Vancouver Aquarium and other researchers around the Vancouver region that animals were basically all dying. We had reports from the aquarium that the animals in their collections, which had been there for 30 to 40 years, were dying suddenly within 48 hours of, you know, everything was gone from the time they first noted the disease. Uh, and they were dying at the same time as the animals outside in the bay that feeds the, uh, the aquarium system water. And that, to me, suggested that there was something not just a chemical effect, uh, that there was something actually potentially transmissible uh, going on. A flurry of emails was exchanged between researchers and aquariums all along the coast, many of which were reporting similar outbreaks. It's one of those email chains that had about 50 people on it at one stage. <laughs> and uh, people were saying, oh, well, it's, it's here, it's not here, uh, and a pattern emerged. So it started to move like a wave to adjacent uh, geographic locations. And that's highly suggestive of it being some sort of transmissible agent. As sea star wasting disease continued to afflict stars along the west coast, changes in the coastal ecosystem were already happening. In a few places, researchers saw small increases in mussel populations. Remember, more mussels might signal the beginning of an ecosystem cascade. Everything was headed in a terrifying direction, and it was hard to know what to make of it all. But just when it looked like things couldn't get any worse, something miraculous happened. The stars started to return. We're getting reports at some locations that we're not, we're not seeing disease anymore. Seemingly out of nowhere, the sea stars made a comeback. In the years since the height of the outbreak, record numbers of juvenile stars have been spotted on the Oregon coast. Rebecca and Allison told me they've also seen a population rebound at Pillar Point in California. For the stars. stars, have you seen any today? Oh yeah, look, we're standing right above one right here. So there are a bunch actually. I've seen more stars in this plot today than I've seen in a long time. So this is, these are both Pisaster ochraceous, the um, ochre star. You can see it has two different color morphs, orange and purple, right next to each other. And then under these rocks, like when you came up, I saw a whole bunch more. Like there are two there. Oh yeah. Um, okay. What the hell, right? I mean, one minute it looked like sea star species along the entire North American coastline were about to be wiped out for good. With the prospect of whole-scale ecosystem collapse stretching thousands of miles. And then, populations started coming back? What's going on here? 
At this point, I'll tell you what scientists like Ian have learned in the years since the peak of the outbreak. But first, let me give you a big heads up. We're still not sure exactly what happened. There's no simple explanation. But let's start with what Ian and others have learned. Early on, he suspected that viruses might be part of the story. The problem, though, is that there are a lot of viruses in the ocean. Over 10 million in just a single drop of ocean water. And at the time of the outbreak, researchers knew almost nothing about the kinds of viruses in sea stars. Prior to our sort of study of this particular epidemic, we had, we had no idea on the types of bacteria or viruses that were basically occurring within sea stars. Nothing. So using specimens collected at various points along the coast, Ian began mapping the DNA of every possible virus found in the sea star tissue. After months of work, his team felt confident they had found the culprit, a brand new, never-before-identified virus that they called Sea Star-Associated Denzovirus. But there was one problem. The virus wasn't just present in the six stars. A large portion of the healthy stars were infected too, just with far fewer copies in their tissue. That's what we're trying to understand. What is that process by which these animals uh, go from being relatively asymptomatic to being just, you know, destroyed? The theory that eventually emerged was that sea star wasting disease is triggered by environmental stressors that unleash the virus on its host. But what environmental stressors are big enough to affect thousands of miles of coastline? There's a number of different factors. Um, the oceans are definitely changing because of uh, human-induced climate change, and essentially that has resulted in thermal increases. Uh, the, the waters are becoming warmer, and also the amount of carbon dioxide going into the surface waters of the ocean has led to some acidification. So climate change and ocean acidification are potential causes, but scientists can't seem to isolate a single definitive trigger. Results from field and lab studies are all over the place. For example, it's unclear whether the disease progresses faster in warmer or colder waters. Likewise, there's no consensus about the effect of pH. This sea star wasting disease is not clearly linked to any specific or single environmental parameter that we can identify. Having said that, all of these things form what we call multiple stressors. We know that the environment is very finely tuned, the animals are very tuned to their environment, and as a result, any combination of any sort of stress, be it temperature or pH, is likely to affect the uh, outcome of the interaction between uh, a pathogen and its host. Again, a lot of questions remain unanswered. And just as scientists haven't solved the mystery of the disappearing stars, they seem to know even less about the mysterious rebound. Will the juveniles that are making a comeback today survive into adulthood? Maybe this is all normal and we just don't have enough long-term data. Ian is now traveling to places like the Shandong province in China, where similar plagues have popped up in recent years. He says that keeping track of the global picture is going to require a much larger surveillance network. I think what this has taught us is that, you know, Number one, there are, you know, pathogens out there uh, that have been previously not been seen. And having that sort of viral surveillance gives us sort of the backdrop against which we can go out in the future and potentially understand future marine disease epidemics. Uh, it might also give us clues as to how we might be able to attenuate it in the future. Ian worries that if ocean climates continue to get more extreme, sea stars will be increasingly stressed. 
It's possible that another sea star wasting outbreak could devastate ecosystems beyond the point of no return. Meanwhile, citizen science groups like the team at Pillar Point continue to watch and hope. After all, if there's not enough of us paying attention, we could fail to appreciate the scale of the changes underway. That was producer Peter Arcuni. We now go from the oceans to the mountains. In our next piece, producer Emma Heath investigates how one particular tree, the trembling aspen, is responding to environmental change. Here's Emma. Have you ever seen Colorado mountains in the fall? Where entire hillsides are covered in brilliant yellow? This is the unmistakable color of trembling aspens. They have these beautiful trembling canopies that when the wind blows, you hear this like shh across the landscape. And they have really lush understory shrubs and grasses and a bunch of plants that you don't see anywhere else in the mountains. And deer and elk love aspen stands. Cows love aspen stands. This is Lee Anderegg, and he loves trembling aspens. Lee grew up in Colorado, surrounded by these trees. I think the trembling aspen are one of the most amazing organisms on the planet. Um, Though people have told me I'm biased. I spent a lot of time camping in aspens as a kid and have a very strong connection to aspen forests. Lee is currently a PhD student at the University of Washington, and he's dedicated his research to these trees. But long before he ever stepped foot in a lab, trembling aspen had been on his mind. He told me the story about the first time he got interested in studying them. It was Thanksgiving over 10 years ago. My brother and I were driving home. Uh, He was a I think senior in college and I was a freshman and he was driving and I was sleeping and we were blasting through northern Arizona on the interstate and I woke up. And it was like we were in this tree graveyard, just miles and miles of these like skeletal dead trees that I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. Lee was baffled. He wanted to know why all these trees were dead and what had killed them. So he went on a quest to find the answers. Sort of a a detective story. How do aspens die? Why do aspens die? In order to start unraveling the reasons for all these aspen deaths, it's important to understand a little bit about the biology of these trees. Trembling aspens mainly grow in North America. They're all over Canada as well as the Western US. And their beauty is not the only thing that makes them special. I think they're 
really particularly amazing because the trembling aspen is a clonal species. So when you walk through an aspen forest, the odds are really good that you're actually just walking through one individual clone and all of the trees around you are genetically identical and connected through a common root system. This root system helps them share resources like water and nutrients in the soil. For example, if one tree grows in a great spot with access to lots of sunlight, other trees in the network can send it extra nutrients. This system of sharing and spreading makes aspens some of the most adaptable trees on the planet, allowing them to live for thousands of years. Instead of sort of growing up one tree and dying and producing seeds and hoping that my seeds sprout, I'm going to grow up a bunch of trees that are all me, and when one of them dies, that's okay. We'll just re-sprout another one from the root. But if these aspen are supposed to be the most adaptable tree in history, why were they all suddenly dying? Well, it all started back in 2002. At the time, the Southwest was in a drought. So Lee and a lot of other scientists thought the dry conditions must have caused the tree graveyard. But the drought theory had a problem. Climatologically, it, it wasn't exactly a, a big moment. In 2002, the Southwest had a drought, but it was not really all that different from droughts that we'd seen in the 50s, the, the drought that caused the Dust Bowl. But 2002 was about two degrees warmer on average than all of these other droughts. So it might not just be a lack of water, but dry conditions coupled with extreme heat. And figuring this out brought up a whole new line of questions for scientists like Lee. Why were trembling aspen especially susceptible to the warmer temperatures? In order to get the answers, Lee brought out the big guns, literally. Most of what we did was, uh, say, shoot off branches with a shotgun. Yep, shotguns. I mean, it's not easy to collect tree branches, and this is one way, right? Lee was shooting down and collecting these branches so he could run tests on them. He wanted to figure out how much water stress each plant was under. Basically, a plant is water stressed if it needs more water than it's getting. And so, in order to find out how water stressed these plants were, Lee needed to know how much water was contained in the branches. After he blasted the trees with a shotgun, he took the branches back to the lab and put them in a pressurized chamber creatively called the pressure bomb, and you squeeze it with pressurized nitrogen. And the pressure that it takes to squeeze water out of, of a stem to actually get water to shoot backwards out of this branch is a measure of how much water stress that plant was under. The more pressure you have to apply to the branch, the more water stressed it is. As he forced water through these branches, Lee was also looking to see how water stress affected the aspen's root systems, or, in his words, its pipes. Essentially, when aspens run out of water, they break the pipes. They continue trying to use water even when it's not there in the soil, and that causes them to become increasingly stressed. And eventually, the, the xylem conduits, the, the water pipes in the stem, 
just spontaneously snap. They, they Little air bubbles form, they stop being able to move water, and they sort of make this spiral down to death, which is some, it's a complicated spiral because aspens are clonal. Which is confusing, right? Aren't the trees able to survive for thousands of years because they are clonal? On average, in most conditions, that's a winning strategy. They're able to sort of disperse risk and to uh, share resources over a much larger network than most trees. I think where that breaks down is under extreme water stress. When there's not enough water to go around, aspens get greedy. When it would probably make more sense to be a little bit more conservative as a clonal species to say it got really dry, I'm going to let my above ground parts, my trees die off, and I'm going to preserve the roots, and then we're going to re-sprout another stand. But aspens can't plan ahead that way. Actually, Lee has been finding that it's not just one tree dying at a time, but entire clones. The whole network of pipes is failing. And that has shown a spotlight on some of the downsides of being clonal, that maybe it's made them perhaps a bit overconfident. And when the water really runs out, that forces them to hit a wall that other trees don't hit. It turns out the thing that allowed aspens to flourish for thousands of years is now its fatal flaw. So what killed the trembling aspen? Well, maybe one of the culprits all along was the trembling aspen itself. So... Lee has at least a partial answer to the question of the tree graveyard. But for him, that's just the beginning. As climate continues to change, the trembling aspen's native habitats are experiencing more drought and higher average temperatures. As a result, these trees are really starting to struggle. They're parched. So, Lee explains, they do what any of us would do when it gets too hot. They go looking for a better spot. In this case, that means moving up in altitude, into the mountains, where it tends to be cooler and wetter. The problem with going uphill, though, is that other species are already there. In Colorado, it's spruce and pine. And they aren't the friendliest neighbors. That battle has, has been going on for, for as long as these forests have been in these mountains. And... Aspens have a potential to just sort of get smashed into this tree that grows higher up above them. Right now, we don't know what these forests will look like in the future. But Lee's research has the potential to help forest managers help the aspens before the situation becomes too dire. Lee says it's kind of like preventative medicine for trees. So my wife's a doctor, so I end up thinking in a lot of medical metaphors. But I think... The a great metaphor for ecological surprises is the heart attack. If you're a doctor and someone has a heart attack, it's an emergency time. You rush them into the hospital and you undertake heroic efforts to try and fix that. But it's a lot easier if you actually know what predisposes people to heart attacks, know about uh, heart disease and about hardening arteries and start before the heart attack to try and reduce the probability of this really big disaster. And so as an ecological community, I think 
the best thing we can offer is some heads up about when things are going to happen, why things are going to happen, and ideally some sort of prophylactic, preventative things that we can do to try and keep those ecological heart attacks from happening, or at least be prepared for them when they do happen. Lee's work with trembling aspens can help us plan ahead for some of these really unexpected ecological changes to come. But for Lee, there's also a more personal reason for looking into the future. I think the real reason that I uh, get up every morning and, and do research is because I want to know what the forests of the western U.S. are going to look like in 100 years and ideally want to help develop ways that we can keep them as healthy as possible so that my children can do the same things that I did growing up, fishing in the mountains and and hunting in the aspen forests. Lee feels a deep tie between his own life and the future of these aspens. They were his childhood companions, his main colleagues. And now he's hoping he'll get to share with his kids a glimpse of hills covered in brilliant yellow leaves. That was producer Emma Heath. Thanks to both Emma and Peter for sharing their stories with us this week. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Mike Osborne, Jackson Roach, Miles Trayer, and me, Leslie Chang. Additional thanks, as always, to Tom Hayden. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at www.genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode.